But yes, I have had a productive, well, it's 11 o'clock my time. So I've had like a fairly productive morning. Um, I woke up, I thought about going for a run, but I didn't, but I thought about it. So that counts for something, That's right? That's half the battle, thinking right. about it. <laughs> um, maybe I'll, there's still time in the day to do it. Um, I went and picked up this little like bookshelf thing off of Facebook Marketplace from someone's Sketchy. apartment. I do it so often, and I have plans later. There's, like, this little ceramic cat that someone's selling, and I'm going to go pick it up at 1 o'clock. Oh, my gosh. Because it's a little kitty. It's so cute. I'm so excited. I think I'm just really bored, and, like, I need reasons to get out of the house. And it's just, like, that's what I'll do in my spare time, is I'll just sit on, like, Facebook Marketplace and look at stuff and be like, (sighs) what do I need? Which is nothing. I don't really need anything, but... Are um, you? I did sorry i sold no i was just gonna say i just sold some stuff on facebook marketplace so i got rid of some furniture so i can accumulate more things (laughs) exciting (laughs) you got rid of a few things which means you can add a few more obviously um are you one of those people on facebook marketplace who regardless of the price is like i'll want to pay you less so if somebody's like i'm selling this for five dollars you're like will you take this will you take 250 uh no if it's a fair price i don't see the need to haggle Mm -hmm. like occasionally i'll haggle if i if i feel like it's unfair um but like for the most part i don't really because i think most people are good at like fairly pricing things but some people are just so like ridiculous in their expectations of like no one wants your used furniture that bad yeah I think you're essentially just paying some, like, getting it out of your home is half the battle so that you don't have to carry it downstairs and throw it out in the trash yourself. That's so true. I think almost anything that you can get for it, or, like, it is wild to me when people are selling, like, really nice, like, antique furniture on Marketplace, because I'm like, if someone could afford this, they probably would just go and buy their own new furniture. Yeah. I also like, see... this is not the place for that. Yeah, I also see, like, sometimes people will be like, I just bought this couch, like, yesterday, but I just don't like how it fits in the room. Um, so here's a screenshot of, like, the, like, price on the actual website that I bought it from, and I want you to pay me $50 less. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's, that's... Like, I get that's it, but then I'm, nobody's... At that point, like, why wouldn't I just buy it myself and get it delivered to my home? Yeah, exactly. Also, um, couches are, like, shady. Like, yeah. Like, there are certain things, unless it's, like, a leather or, like, faux leather couch, then you can't, like, clean it properly. So mm-hmm. someone could have, like, peed all over it or, like, had their dog roll on top of it. Like, okay. You don't know. <laughs> or, like, someone could have found it on the side of the road and then just said, couch for sale. Fair. Um, any, I sometimes will post, like, if I haven't sold. Usually, like, when I make, like, a big canvas art piece, it'll actually sell from um like instagram like people will just see it and then comment and say or send me a message that they want to buy it but every so often it doesn't like immediately sell and so i'll post it to like facebook marketplace and my art like painting prices 
when it's not a commission is like are pretty reasonable in my opinion um sometimes i'll like i'll make it well no so they're generally pretty reasonable but no matter what i post it for everyone is always like i want to pay you like 20 dollars or 20 to like 50 dollars less depending on what it is and so now if i do post it i automatically like make the price outrageous (laughs) so that i can at least get what i like actually want for it Um, yeah yeah yeah. see that's that's the thing is that you have to price it like 10 or 20 dollars more um but like i just sold for instance we got a wayfair table and chairs like kitchen table and chairs Mm -hmm. um evan's grandma like gifted it to us because that was back when we didn't have any furniture at all wait the like Um, mint chairs yeah i liked that oh i hated it 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 was trash no it was was it like horrible because yeah it was like weak and like wobbly and like if i was like i didn't feel comfortable standing on top of a chair to like move something around yeah and we got i don't know i'm pretty sure we had this when you were here that antique um table and chairs um that was for free because someone in my building was giving it away and it is a thousand times nicer than that stupid wayfair table (laughs) um is the bane of my existence i really hated it um but so we originally got it for 350 dollars, and i sold it for 50 dollars because i'm like i just want this out of my house and i don't expect anyone to really pay that much money for it and then i got like 40 messages asking for in like the course of 24 hours oh i'm like maybe i should have like um put it for a little bit more money but i was like you know what this is what i'm willing to accept just like get it out um and then i had that terrible coffee table from target with matching end tables and i sold that for forty dollars to this guy named kyle who's like the most broed out guy ever oh my god he was well this is what bothered me is that he was like oh can i come by around one o'clock to come pick it up and i was like sure around one o'clock that means like around one o'clock like 12 40 between 12 45 and like 1 30. um so then i was like yeah here's my number just text me on when you're on your way i'll bring everything down just have it ready to go um he messaged me he texted me at 11 50 and said i'm on my way and i was like you said because i was like i have a i was in a meeting starting at 12. um i was like can you not but i just like was on the phone and like trying to do in the middle of all this and then i kept forgetting to mute myself and everyone's like what's going on and i felt so bad but i'm like kyle come on man do you not do you not know what around one means it does not mean 12 20. like ugh and i was just like whatever like i just want these terrible tables out of my home so um i don't know why but that or i guess i do know why but uh that reminded reminded me we're at where i work (laughs) (laughs) we're switching from um skype to all sorts of like we're just phasing skype out you were using skype because anyone uses skype well yeah (laughs) Well, so I guess, so um, at like a lab that's different from the one that you and I were at, like Skype is something that like we use for like all of our meetings. Like even if we're all in the office, we don't just do, we like would just do a virtual meeting via Skype. That's, Um, I feel like Skype is like what you used back in like 
college to like skype well, your skype friends for business not oh. like skype not like skype so i guess back when you were there it might have been called link um and i so never then we, we never sw- once used that technology, yeah we though. never we were not allowed yeah, we to didn't. work from home very strictly (laughs) well we still yeah even when we were in the office though my new lab like we do it all the time and so we're phasing skype out which is like super annoying because it's the simplest way to like schedule like meetings especially with the project like my main project i am just constantly working like talking to people all over the country and so the easiest way to connect everyone is like here's one link and a call line like let's go they're phasing it out and they gave us like two different platforms microsoft teams which i hate so far and then um webex which is like the alternative to zoom because zoom is just not has proven itself not to be secure so the other platform is webex um and so i like hosted my first meeting on webex and somebody asked another like one of the guys on the call a question and i saw like like everyone's waiting for him to respond and i don't know why but i was just like huh maybe he doesn't realize he's on mute and i as the host i can like unmute and so i like unmuted him which is like a huge vile like i was i should not have done that in hindsight but and i guess he was just like like on our call for like appearances only and was like 100% having another meeting that he was like well this meeting's more important like he's like talking oh my god and I, like and I just I just like immediately like like we, we heard enough and then like I muted him and they like thought he accidentally unmuted himself and so when he actually joined the call like everyone was like making fun of him and like giving him a hard time for like wow you double booked us blah 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 and I was just like sitting in shame at least he like wasn't having an inappropriate conversation (laughs) yeah yeah that's true that's true hello everyone and welcome to pink collar crime a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women i'm rachel and i'm natalie if you're joining us for the first time welcome each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details motives similarities and differences etc etc if you like our show tell your friends please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show and give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. So this week, Rachel and I are doing um, wrongly, like wrongful convictions. So women who were wrongfully convicted. And I am actually very excited about this case or about like this topic only because I read so many different cases of wrongfully convicted women that I'm like, I want to scream all of these stories from the like rooftops. And so I am very excited for us to like get into this today and like revisit it Um, later on. I also like looked up some like random facts that I probably don't have in, uh, in front of me anywhere, but I don't, I don't know if you did, but one of the things that I saw was like, I guess there's like a natural or natural, a national registry of exonerations. And if you look at the registry, I think it's like, like 2,500, like 50 or 60 people that have been exonerated. And if you do the math of the total time served from all of those people, it's like they served like over 22,000 years 
based off of like wrongful convictions which really tells you like how like in a lot of cases how broken um our justice system has to be because i mean twenty two thousand years um being served by innocent people tells me that justice was not served in those cases um and i know sometimes it is you know police and investigators and prosecutors doing the best that they can um and following the breadcrumbs where the breadcrumbs lead well we will definitely i definitely want to have this be maybe like we can incorporate it like once a month or something because you're right there is so many people that have been wrongly convicted and i think that that's a, a fault in our current system and that's the result of many different things um whether it's, you know, the cops maybe not having the resources to investigate everything properly or having some biases that lead to them, you know, making these arrests. And I think um, ineffective counsel is is a big one, too, if you're not able to Definitely. afford your own lawyer. Um, and this is me. I am glad that you said you looked up some facts because I think that was something that was on my to-do list that kind of slipped. Um, but just anecdotally, I think that's something that I've been interested in. Um, I can recommend season three of Serial, I think does a great job of kind of exploring the ordinary cases that, you know, sometimes people end up pleading guilty to things because they don't want to go through the hassle of a, of a trial and it's just easier, you know, okay, it's easier for me to just get like a year of probation than to risk, you know, being in jail. So I'm just going to plead guilty even though I didn't do this thing. Um, and I think that's, I, it definitely plays out in my case where um, there was a minor who was interviewed by the police that was not, um, you know, that was borderline mentally disabled is, is what it was described. I don't know the specific um, thing, but someone who definitely should not have been interviewed alone that didn't have, you know, the cognitive ability to understand the questions. And that was, you know, um, easily susceptible to being swayed by questions and not necessarily understanding what they were being asked. And I think, too, the interviewing techniques that are used in some cases of, like, if you're interviewing someone for, like, three days straight and, like, they can't escape, like, that's has to take such a toll on your mental health. And I think almost anyone, even if you, you know, can sit here and say, if I was innocent for something, I would never confess to something I didn't do. Well, if you're on day three of being, like, hounded by the police and it doesn't feel like there's an escape, you're backed into a corner, you might just, you know, give in just to, just to get out, just to escape, like you're experiencing such a a state of desperation at that point um so like i said i don't have 100 percent facts but that is something that i'm interested in okay so i will be telling you guys about joyce ann brown on may 6 1980 the owners of a north dallas texas first store called fine furs experienced every store owner's worst nightmare At about 1 p.m., two armed women allegedly entered the store owned by Ruben and Alla Danziger and demanded that they put as many furs as possible into plastic trash bags. According to Alla's account of the events that took place, one of the women wore sunglasses and pink sweatpants. The other wore a navy blue tracksuit. 
All recounted that the woman wearing the pink sweats took two shots at the couple. One shot aimed at Reuben landed, and the other aimed at Alla missed. Alla pleaded with the assailants, telling them that she had breast cancer and was only given five weeks to live anyway. The woman in the pink sweatpants responded, we'll just let you suffer then. And the two grabbed as many plastic bags of furs as possible and ran out of the store and drove off in a brown car. The car was a 1980 Datsun. Um, back in the first store, Reuben Danziger lay dying and would later pass away from the gunshot wound. The following day, police officers recovered the 1980 Datsun that the assailants drove off in. They were able to track the vehicle to a car rental company and where they found that the Datsun had been rented by a woman named Joyce Ann Brown. The police matched the name given by the rental car company to a Dallas local named Joyce Ann Brown, a 32-year-old black woman. Of course, the police immediately suspected that the Joyce Ann Brown that they had located had to have been the same Joyce Ann Brown that rented the vehicle and presumably carried out the armed robbery and assault that left Reuben dead. Not only that, the Joyce Ann Brown that they had suspected worked at a force at a first store that was only three miles away from Reuben and Alla's first store. Um, that only strengthened police suspicions that they'd found the right person. Due to a prior arrest, police officers had a mugshot of this Joyce Ann Brown. They showed the photo, the photo to Alla, who identified the woman in the mugshot as the woman wearing the navy blue tracksuit, um, who was the accomplice of the woman in the pink sweatpants who shot her husband. Police issued a warrant for the arrest of Joyce Ann Brown. Two days after the robbery, Joyce was watching the Dallas Morning News and, to her surprise, found out that she was wanted in connection to the crime. Certain it was a mix-up, Joyce went down to the police station, thinking that she'd be able to clear things up. Upon arrival, she was promptly arrested and charged. The judge set her bond at $1 million. An outrageous cash bail, Joyce remained in custody. Uh, police continued their investigation to further build a solid case against Joyce. After searching her home, the police weren't able to find anything linking Joyce Ann Brown, um, that they, the Joyce Ann Brown that they had in custody, to the crime. No furs, no weapons, nothing. Soon, investigators learned that the Joyce Ann Brown that had rented the 1980 Datsun used as the getaway car was another woman from Denver with a Colorado license. The Joyce Ann Brown that they had in custody was neither from Denver, nor did she have a Colorado license. If this wasn't evidence enough, Joyce's work time card placed her at work the day of the robbery and murder. She was accounted for for all but 36 minutes when she was on her lunch break. In addition, Joyce's co-workers provided a description of Joyce's attire that day, a black blouse and a white skirt. These details didn't seem to mean anything to the investigators, and Joyce remained behind bars. Dallas police went as far as locating the correct Joyce Ann Brown all the way in Denver. So they literally traveled all the way to Denver from Dallas. It seems a bit unnecessary. (laughs) Um, And so that Joyce Ann Brown told the officers that she actually did rent the 1980 Datsun and she loaned it to a friend named Renee Michelle Taylor, whom she hadn't seen since, nor had she seen the vehicle since. They located Renee's apartment and found the stolen furs, pink sweatpants, and a 22 caliber pistol that matched the weapon used to kill Ruben Danziger. But they couldn't find Renee. However, according to a application for a writ of habeas corpus um, that I was able to find and 
um, I think you ran into a similar thing where we don't really understand legalese, but I read it as much as I could. Um, it looks, it, and so this was filed by Joyce's attorney, um, uh, at some point, um, basically, uh, the attorney alleges that Dallas prosecutors either knew or so if they had followed the procedures for a thorough investigation after finding Renee's identity, that they should have found out that there was an active investigation against Renee and her known accomplice named Lorraine Germany for stealing furs from furriers, both in Denver and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Furriers. That's such a, a funny <laughs> name. Yeah. Not to interrupt but furrier yes um <laughs> so denver police actually had a memorandum dated ni- dated um 1978 um so two years before this um particular crime that listed both renee michelle taylor and lorraine germany as association as associates in connection to fur robberies so with all of this compelling evidence pointing to the innocence of the joyce and brown that they had in a jail cell um, investigators and prosecutors did the only logical thing they could do. They brought Joyce to trial in October of 1980. Um, that's sarcasm, guys. So logical. <laughs> Definitely. Like, you 100% have the other person and, you know, yeah. all the evidence pointing towards this person didn't do it. So why not, why not take them to trial? Yeah. Why not? I mean, so the prosecutors had an obviously weak case, but this was Texas, the South, in the 80s, they had an all-white jury and a black woman accused of killing not just a white man, but an elderly Holocaust survivor. The prosecutors liked their odds. And so despite um, the defense giving a clear-as-day alibi um, with multiple corroborations from witnesses of Joyce's whereabouts, prosecutors just retorted that it was completely possible for for Joyce to have taken her 36-minute lunch break, change from her white skirt and black blouse into a navy blue track suit, meet up with her friend in a 1980 Datsun, drive to the Fine Furs first store, um, <clears throat> rob the dancingers, um, resulting in Ruben's death. She got away in, a ni- in the same 1980 Datsun, changed back into her white skirt and black blouse, disposed of the navy blue blue tracksuit and made it back to work in well under an hour like that's just what they like hinge their case on they're like it's totally possible um personally i think 36 minutes is like not a long time in particular to do all the things that she was accused of absolutely not yeah but apparently it was compelling um but i mean for them for the prosecution to top it all off they also had the tearful testimony of Alla Danzinger, who continued to positively identify Joyce as being one of the women who robbed her store that day and being the accomplice of the woman who killed her husband. And so I think that... Witness, like, testimony or, like, eyewitness testimony is not always reliable, which is important to take into account, too. It's not always always reliable, um, but it's especially not reliable... Um, in terms of like identification across racial lines. Um, I think that there's enough research out there that you guys are able to look up um, that show that um, people of different races have a harder time sometimes identifying like different features (laughs) that differentiate different people um, in this. And so I think that could have been one of the... um, issues in this case um not only that she was also elderly and scared and it was a traumatic event um so yeah um 
Meanwhile, a jailhouse informant named Martha Jean Bruce came forward saying that Joyce had admitted to her that she had participated in the robbery that day. It oh should be my goodness. So your your case has a jailhouse informant too. Yeah. I mean, there's always a jailhouse informant, I feel like, in these cases. It just shouldn't um, be allowed ever, in my opinion. Like, yeah. Um, but and I in in this case, it just screams like basically the plot of just mercy and like everything that happened in that that's such a good movie um it is so sad especially if we're talking about wrongful convictions please like if you have it in you go watch just mercy it is a great film jamie fox does great michael b jordan is great and he's nice to look at so i cried so much in the middle oh yeah if you watch it you'll know what i'm talking about but it's very very intense um, and so it should be noted that Martha had previously been convicted of making false statements to police and that in exchange for her testimony against Joyce, she was actually promised leniency, even though she was already sentenced to five years in prison for attempted murder. So she was basically promised like whatever she wanted um, in regards to her current sentence um, if she testified against Joyce and the fact that so that fact and this arrangement was not made clear to the judge nor the jury at any point before or after Martha's testimony against Joyce Um, and I think that those two pieces of information one that she had already served a jail sentence and was convicted for making false statements um, I think speaks to someone's character a little bit Um, and not only that um, I think knowing that she had that she won was sentenced to five years in prison, but was had an arrangement with the prosecution that if she did testify, then maybe years could be knocked off of her sentence. I think whether or not that sways your opinion on if she's a reliable witness, I think is still informative to possibly what motivations this person has for coming forward or possibly even making this up. Right. So, I don't I don't think that any testimony is trustworthy if someone is getting something in return for it. If someone come like if a jailhouse informant comes forward of their own volition and is not promised, you know, any time off their sentence or whatever, I'm more inclined to believe that what they're saying is the truth and what they're just trying to, you know, maybe be a good person and to help the case, but anytime someone's promised something in return, it just it doesn't feel good it doesn't feel like you can necessarily trust that information agreed um not just that like we we like the narrative that's being told in this case is that she was promised leniency um one of the plot lines um if you do watch just mercy kind of goes through this and it shows like a jailhouse informant um who was effectively promised um something from his like off of his sentence but the other side was that he was he was also told if you don't testify like they basically tortured the guy right like if you don't testify um like the electric chair might be waiting for you and so there's no way to say that the prosecution didn't also say hmm that attempted murder charge five years is a little light hmm if you don't testify maybe we're gonna have to up that and so um just knowing that there possibly is some like influence or coercion like i don't think i don't think that it's a trustworthy testimony but also it doesn't seem like um i guess appropriate you know Mm -hmm. 
um, kind of seems very manipulative or taking um, an abusive power, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, so a month later, after, Mar- after Martha's testimony um, against Joyce, uh, the Dallas District Attorney wrote that Martha's five-year sentence for attempted murder was excessive and recommended that her sentence be cut. Soon, the governor of Texas, Bill Clements, ordered Martha's immediate release from prison. So that kind of just shows what the quid pro quo quo was there. Um, And all of the other facts discovered during the course of the investigation, um, including the location of the Denver Joyce Ann Brown, um, Renee Michelle Taylor's rap sheet uh, for stealing furs with her friend Lorraine Germany, or the fact that if you actually look at a mugshot of Lorraine Germany that the Denver police had, she bore a resemblance to the Dallas Joyce that they had in custody. Um, None of that was presented at trial. And I actually was able to find um, a picture of uh, like a side-by-side comparison of Joyce's mugshot and Lorraine Germany's mugshot. And like they looked different, but cameras back then kind of sucked so do you have um, the link i would love to see it yeah yeah i do um it's i think it's it's one of my sources so um yeah so i like in this case like i don't know how like ala danzinger could have danziger could have known and but i do think that if the prosecution had shown her both pictures that she might have been like at least apprehensive to to definitively say it was Joyce. Um, But again, the prosecution did not do their due diligence and nor did they um, give all of the information to the jury or the judge. And so in the end, the jury found Joyce Ann Brown guilty of aggravated robbery. They sentenced her to life in prison. Um, a year after the original crime took place, Renee was actually located and arrested when she showed up at a hospital to give birth. Um, she, asked, she actually was able to escape police custody from the hospital um, while she was in um, like postnatal like recovery. Um, and so she basically ran off and in the process of running off, she found one of the guards purses, um, which had a uh, paycheck in it. And so she stole it. Um, and but she was soon arrested um, afterwards uh, trying to cash the check. Um, and so uh, she was now in police custody. And so they were able to finally question her um, about who her accomplice was in particular um, on the day of the Ruben and Ala Dan- Danzinger um, first door robbery. And uh, she refused to name who the person with whom she robbed the first door with. Uh, but she did emphatically testify that it was not the Dallas nor the Denver Joyce Ann Brown who was with her. But still, Joyce remained serving life sentence. In 1989, 10 years, uh, almost 10 years after the crime, um, a man named... James C. McCloskey, who'd founded an organization aimed at investigating crimes of claims of innocence called Centurion Ministries, learned of Joyce's case. Working with a private investigator named Richard Reyna, they learned um, 
they learned that Martha Bruce was essentially a convicted liar. And they also learned about her arrangement with, with her arrangement with prosecutors and that it was not disclosed at trial. So because of that, they felt like they had enough like reason to really look into this case. Um, and so the two continued to follow the breadcrumbs and eventually had uncovered all of the evidence that clearly pointed to Joyce and the Dallas Joyce Ann Brown's innocence. Um, an appeal was filed with the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, and after nine years, 25 weeks, and six days without freedom, Joyce Ann Brown finally walked out of a Texas correctional facility. However, she was technically released on a recog- recognizance bond, which implied that the state was still investigating and potentially could recall her back to court or prison on these charges again. That's horrible. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah. living your life like that? Like, getting so close to, or not even getting so close, but being released, but knowing at any second that you might be pulled back into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it to me, it's just shocking that, like, this evidence wasn't enough for them to be like, wait, let's get, like, hold on, like, let's re- overturn this, um, which I'm, I'll get more into in just a second. But um, four months later, in February 1990, um, the state of Texas dropped the charges against Joyce Ann Brown. And so right here is like where my confusion kind of sets in on like legal, this legal process. And my thought is that there is no true rationale here. I think that the system is just broken. Um, So what doesn't make sense here is that she was already convicted of the crime, a crime that the state knew she didn't commit, but she was convicted of nonetheless. And so as I understand the legal system, dropping charges really would only be meaningful in the event that she hadn't already been convicted, right? Um, And so like, I guess my opinion is like what the state of Texas should have done was overturn the conviction. Like she was no longer being charged. She was convicted. So the conviction needed to be overturned. Um, And Joyce like definitely agreed that her conviction needed to be overturned. However, the only option presented to her by the state of Texas was to apply for a pardon. Joyce felt that applying for a pardon would only make sense if she committed a crime. Someone who did not commit a crime should not need to be pardoned. I think that logic, I like I follow that logic perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they were at an impasse. The Texas, the state of Texas was not budging or changing their laws. Um, they weren't going to just like overturn the conviction. I assume the governor didn't care enough uh, to make any exceptions or issue any executive orders or anything like that. Um But what's more is that Joyce also wanted compensation, which she was owed for her wrongful conviction. However, per Texas law at the time, and I don't know if it's changed, I hope it has, compensation could only be granted after applying for a pardon. So it was like this stupid kind of cycle. It's like she needed to apply for a pardon, but why should she be pardoned if she didn't do the crime? Um, And so Joyce continued uh, throughout her life to to campaign uh, for this to be changed uh, for years, but it never was. And so she never got her compensation. Her conviction was never overturned, nor was she pardoned, which she shouldn't have had to have been pardoned. Um, And so, yeah, in a lot of ways, justice wasn't served for Joyce. Um, I will say Renee um, Michelle Brown did 
go to or Renee Michelle Taylor did go to prison um, I believe on a life sentence um, and as far as I know they never arrested Lorraine Germany in connection with this crime um, but Joyce went on to tell her story and support innocence organizations in addition she founded an organization called Mothers for the Advancement of Social Support Systems um, and which was dedicated to helping people released from prison get access to resources to help them rebuild their lives. That's amazing. Yeah. And in 2015, Joyce suffered a heart attack and passed away. Um, and it's just really unfortunate that, like, despite, like, all of that, for whatever reason, the state of Texas never, like, truly overturned her conviction um i did as much of a thorough search as i could and i didn't see anything and if i'm wrong like please let me know i would love to be wrong um but yeah like i think it just doesn't make sense and i think it's completely ridiculous (laughs) like all of the facts were pointing away from this woman and we're like just let's bring her to trial anyway who cares um right it doesn't seem like they were following the innocent until proven guilty like mindset they were like um you're guilty even though we have all these facts that point to you being innocent we're just gonna try you anyway because we already had the idea so why why waste it we're just we're just gonna do it yeah and i mean i like i want to somewhat empathize with like prosecutors like in a lot of way obviously the prosecutors work for the people right and so if there is like a large like public outcry for justice to be served and justice to be served now um regardless of who the justice is served to i think that um like it could be like i could see it being hard for prosecutors to be like all right well we're just gonna like you know wait and like follow like this investigation thoroughly and sure we know who actually did it but we can't find them like i could see what like how that pushback could be stressful for prosecution or for the prosecutors but at the same time like it's not worth someone's freedom like you're you're stressed because people are pushing you to convict um isn't really worth someone losing their freedom or their innocence and she had a whole family she had a ton of kids like and she lost nine years with them um which is absolutely ridiculous and unfortunately especially for minorities um black people in particular in this country um and i mean anyone who's gone to jail like once you like it becomes a cycle and it's hard to get yourself out of that and so um and for her to have essentially this felony on her record till the day that she died um i imagine didn't make things easier for her in terms of getting a job and um rebuilding her life and so i definitely see what her motivation was for creating um the mothers for the advancement of social support systems yeah that's amazing that she did that because even people clearly i'm sure she saw that people who aren't innocent there is a cycle of like there's no way to really come out of it and benefit your like you go into jail and come out in a worse position than you started um and they expect you to like they expect you to rehabilitate yourself yeah doesn't make sense doesn't make sense to me so my case disclaimer there was not too much so the main focus of this case it's um 
the story of my person whose name is Paula Gray and then there's the Ford Heights Four who are the four men who were um, also wrongfully convicted. Um, So a lot of the information mostly focused on these men and it is going to go off on a different tangent also at the end that doesn't really have to do with Paula but I think is still really important. So um, also disclaimer there wasn't too much information from what I saw that went into a lot of detail about what happened the night of or the crime that took place. So I literally have like three sentences about it. So I'm just saying I couldn't find information. Not that I was lazy with my research, but so we'll get started. On May 11th in 1978, Lawrence Leinberg was working the night shift at a gas station in Homewood, Illinois. He and his fiance, Carol Schmall, were up abducted and later killed they were found outside of a townhouse in the mostly black east heights chicago which was later called fort heights um and both lawrence and carol were white and the men who were eventually um convicted were were black um so there is some racial stuff which i just wanted to keep in that mind as we're going through so surprise surprise not a surprise. Um, the Cook County Sheriff's Police received a tip from a man named Charles McCraney, who lived in a public housing development in Fort Heights. His tip alerted them to interview 17-year-old Paula Gray, who lived nearby. The police questioned Paula, who was only 17 years old at the time, and had a what was borderly described or borderly it was described as a borderline mental disability. It didn't go into you know more specifically what was going on but from what i could find she had an iq of 55 um so an iq of 70 or below may indicate some limited intellectual functioning um so she was interviewed over two nights in motels without legal counsel present before she gave a confession she later testified she was president president <laughs> oh god um she later testified that she was present when kenneth adams verniel jimerson willie rain and dennis williams raped carol schmall and shot both of the victims to death paula said that dennis made her hold a big type lighter on the second floor of a townhome when the four men gang raped the female victim. She said she was forced to witness multiple shootings of the white female in the head and that took place in the home. And um, the shooting of the male victim who was shot in the head and in the back. Um, But this took place outside near a creek. She claimed she saw Dennis throw the gun into the creek and threatened to kill her if she told anyone what she saw. Dennis was connected to Paula because he knew her and her sister, Paulette, which I would imagine that gets kind of confusing, having Paula and Paulette. Probably. Who knows? (laughs) Um, And um, so he was close with the rest of her family, too, from what I could tell. He knew that Paula attended a special school for, for a few years, and him, Kenneth, and Verniel would often frequent the Gray residence. They were all friends and would drink and smoke marijuana near the Gray home. When he was saying this, he was saying, you know, this wasn't something I was proud of. But to that, I say, you know, that's your own private business. Um, so I don't think that he should feel like he has to be ashamed of that. 
But um, on June, June 19th, Gray recanted her confession. She said she only, or she had only shared two facts that were not already known to the police, and these facts were later discredited. Paula said she was drugged and that the police had walked her through the crime scene and told her exactly what to say. Despite her recantation, she was tried alongside Kenneth, Willie, and Dennis. They could not go after Verniel at the time because without Gray's testimony, there was no evidence putting him at the scene of the crime. The convictions of Kenneth, Willie, and Dennis relied on McCraney's testimony and the testimony of David Jackson, an informant who claimed he heard William and Dennis confessing to the crime in jail. So again, um, jail informant, which... Why? Anyway, um, the the prosecution also presented forensic evidence that was later shown to be false in one regard and unreliable in another. Additionally, the prosecution eliminated all black jurors from the trial, which seems like an extremely questionable decision considering all of the defendants were black and both of the victims were white. I don't, even though this took place in the 1980s, I still don't see how that wasn't like, oh, that's kind of weird that we let them do that. I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've, I've only seen it like dramatized on TV, but like i imagine their justification is like like because of like how bad like race relations are in this country like obviously a black juror is going to like side with the black person no matter what you know what i mean um and that like they just find like any stupid reasons to like sure. say that they they're going to be impartial but i'm like why would you feel like an all white jury would be impartial, More impartial based right. on race yeah questionable decision there but um so kenneth was sentenced to 75 years in prison willie was sentenced to life dennis to death and paula was sentenced to 50 years for the murders and 10 years concurrently for perjury which something that's confusing is if she said that her what happened wasn't true why was she tried for murder and not just perjury yeah i mean so this so this case was actually one that i like skimmed before and i was like this just seems so like i can't even understand like how like some of these charges like happen (laughs) like if she perjured herself then why are you still charging her based on the original testimony at all anyway well right it's like these two things shouldn't exist at the same time because one was proven to be false and that's like the only reason why the other one's true and like is it fair that someone that 10 years for perjury when she was you know shown to be have a mental disability and was 17 years old and was held for two nights without legal counsel like come on or Um, parents or anyone advocating on her on her behalf absolutely insane i and like i said there wasn't too much information around you know like what her family had to say about it um or maybe like there the the mediest documents were like very long legalese type things and i tried to to go through them as best as i could but um as far as kind of more around the backstory of of why this all happened i unfortunately don't have as much information um but in 1982 willie and dennis won new trials based on the ineffective assistance of counsel Paula agreed to testify against them and Verniel in exchange for release from prison. Willie and Dennis were convicted on the false testimony of Paula and Charles. Verniel was sentenced to life without parole and Dennis was sentenced to death. Um, 
so that happened again where um, the other people were tried and the second trial didn't seem to go much better for the others. Um, so here's one of the issues. Charles didn't originally place Verniel at the scene of the crime when he shared his statement, but he did put him at the scene of the crime during the trial, which to me shows that he might have been influenced by the police or by whoever. Um, Verniel's conviction was eventually reversed in 1995 based on prosecutorial misconduct. Paula had falsely stated that she wasn't promised anything in exchange for her testimony, and prosecutors failed to correct this information. So again, it she not only was in jail for for lying on her testimony, which I don't know if you can necessarily call it, for being coerced, I would say, into giving a false um, confession. Then when she was in prison, they clearly she was very, um, you know, easily could be easily manipulated and I think even someone who didn't have a mental disability might feel desperate to get out of prison and if they were offered something they would obviously take the chance to do that um so and it's also the prosecutor's fault for not correcting that information and not seeing that this person you know might have been influenced by other things um so now there was no credible evidence against Verniel, and the Cook County State's Attorney Office finally agreed to do DNA testing. Um, in the meantime, there were some journalism students who were working under Professor David Protes at Northwestern University. They uncovered a police file that showed a witness had told the sheriff's police that they had the wrong guys. So it was a few days after. The witness said he knew exactly who did it because he heard gunshots and he saw the four men running away from the scene of the crime and later saw them selling items taken from the victims during the robbery. These men, Arthur Robinson, Juan Rodriguez, and Ira and Dennis Johnson were later found to be the real killers. This information was never turned over to the defense before the trial due to police and prosecutorial misconduct. So one of the men uh, who committed this crime was dead by the time this information came out, but the other three ultimately did confess to the crime. So DNA testing also confirmed the innocence of the Ford Heights Four. The four men filed civil suits against the Cook County Sheriff's Police. During the discovery process that took place during litigation, it became clear that Paula's confession was coerced by the police which like, no duh, and the men's claims were settled for $36 million, the largest such settlement so far in U.S. history. Um, so in 2000, George Ryan, the governor of Illinois, declared a moratorium on the state's death penalty, citing this case as an example where innocent men would have been killed if it hadn't been for the work of unpaid Northwestern University journalism professors and students. Paula's conviction was thrown out with an opinion written by Circuit Court Judge William D. O'Neill in July of 2001. The ruling was appealed by the Cook County State's Attorney Office, but in November of 2002, George, uh, Governor George Ryan granted Paula a pardon based on her innocence. So she ended up being entitled to $100,000 in automatic compensation from the Illinois Court of Claims and it made it so she could proceed with a civil rights claim. So that's kind of the end of, of Paula's story, which to me, it seems it seems a little bit strange that she, and but I understand both sides of the story. So she wasn't included in the Ford Heights Four, and I would imagine that's because she gave false testimony and maybe there was some, 
negative feelings between the men and her. But to me, she was just as much, could have been just as much of a victim as these men because she was coerced. And she was also convicted of, you know, taking part in this crime, even though her testimony was 100% false. Um, So to me, it seems unfortunate that she might not have been eligible to um, receive any of that $36 million. um, And she only got $100,000 in compensation, which I'm sure, you know, if she had like legal fees or she lost like a good portion of her life, you know, being in jail, I think being in jail even for a few days is hard on anyone, but for, you know, years, that's terrible. Yeah. And, like, given, in my opinion, given that, like, obviously she, like, her, given her, like, mental disability and just the circumstances of her questioning, like, she, in my opinion, was very clearly (laughs) influenced, coerced, manipulated, used, taken advantage of, by like investigators right and so and i understand well it is her testimony that got these people in jail but she wouldn't in my as far as i understand it she wouldn't have known their names like to give this testimony i imagine some like a bit of what happened was like the cops are like you know this guy you know this guy you know that guy and like eventually the questions evolved into a story that she was able to so it's like it was that one guy who said that he saw them and then exactly that clearly the the gray family had a relationship with these men and that just kind of snowballed from there yeah exactly and so i think that given just given the nature of like what happened and how I think the police probably influenced this. It's shocking to me that $100,000 is all that she got, and especially given her mental disability. Like, if you think it's hard for, like, you know, somebody with, like, an average IQ to come out of prison after a few years to, like, rebuild their lives, like, how hard do you think it is for somebody with a mental disability, like, as severe as hers? And, um, you know, not getting the resources and things... um, that she needed i just feel like i feel like i say it all the time (laughs) on this podcast but like this um this case is like one of those that i'm like hmm one if the investigation had been or the interviews had been conducted correctly um like a social worker or someone being present while um this child the 17 year old child was being interviewed i think could have made quite a difference Oh, yeah. And even I think I didn't end up putting this in, but I had taken written notes. Um, I read a little bit about the um, interview that occurred between Dennis and the police. And they were calling him the N word and saying, like, we know you did it. Like, sit your black ass down, blah, 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 blah. Like, that was a direct quote. They like, I'm just appalled. And like, it clearly shows the dynamics and how inappropriate that was, which I'm sure that still happens to this day, because, if you know, like, yeah in certain areas or even in areas where you wouldn't expect it it just was horrible reading through what he had gone through they basically said we know you did this so just tell us like it wasn't (laughs) it wasn't like tell us where you were on this night Mm -hmm. blah 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 horrible i will like you know i I told you i used to watch um live pd before it was rightfully canceled um and even like when i'd be watching that i'm like you can't talk to people this way like 
they'd like just roll up on someone that they suspected possibly did a crime they'd be like mother effort like you know just like i know you're the one who was there and it's like okay in what work environment like i'm trying to imagine in my job if somebody like took my pencil like walked up to them and started like cursing them out like in what environment or if a if like a patient or somebody like a research participant like slighted me and i like started cursing them out in what in in what world would i have a job tomorrow but this somehow is like common practice like nurses and doctors who have to deal with patients who are you know maybe having like psychotic episodes or who are being aggressive towards them i don't think that they're often swearing towards their patients and you know they're also in a role where their lives are at risk and they're putting themselves in danger um but yeah to me it it seemed like I think the first time I saw some type of cop interaction where I heard the police swearing, I was like, the police are allowed to, like, swear when they're on the job, which is a little (laughs) bit ignorant of me, I guess, but... So cute. (laughs) To me, it would be like, that's your job. You're not... There's, like, no job where you should treat another human being like that or that that should be acceptable because you're supposed to be professional. And in any other job you're expected to maintain an air of like professionalism so a lot of work needs to be done unsurprisingly and on that note i have a but wait there's more to this little case i don't i think i said this earlier but there's like a little tangent that doesn't have really anything to do with paula but has to do with some weird racial stuff during the aftermath, you know, just what we all wanted. Um, so after everything took place, the New York Times ran a front page article crediting the three students that worked on this case um, and DNA evidence for the exoneration. While it was true that the DNA evidence helped with the exoneration, the students had less to do with it than the story would have you believe. So Stephanie Gold, the student Stephanie Goldstein, a future law student, Stacy Dello, an aspiring filmmaker, and Laura Sullivan, who was quoted to be the guts of the operation, were the three students. They were all um, white females. Um, David Protest, who I mentioned earlier, their journalism professor, appeared to be equally responsible, um, having said that if he and his three students could solve a crime in less than six months, the authorities should have been able to do it in less time, preventing the 65 years cumulative of of wrongful uh incarceration so basically the gist of this one article i was reading was that a lot of and i saw this in the other articles a lot of this credited these three students and these three students alone and i kind of was getting like white saviory vibes to it um so renee brown a private detective played a huge role in solving this case he was a black um private investigator so laura was quoted saying in an interview is that they wouldn't have been able to go to fort heights without him he had all the connections um you know he was the one who knew who to talk to so even oprah winfrey praised the students for solving this crime when they came on her show stephanie claimed you know we're not the heroes here and professed the appreciation for Um, all the lawyers who had donated their time, all the, you know, legal clinics that looked into everything. So it it basically seems like these students, you know, played a little bit of a role, but the majority, and it doesn't really seem like that they were even trying to take credit for it all. I mean, they were like 18-year-old girls. They, um, 
but it was like, oh my God, these 18 year old girls are so amazing. Um, so their professor ended up getting kind of frustrated with everything. And when him and the four men, uh, the four Heights four were invited to be on the show, they boycotted because they had basically credited the students and not given them much information. But the professor kind of, you know, what's the word? He like furthered that narrative or, you know, he kind of did, he kind of helped push it along. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1982, Chicago lawyer featured an article, Will We Execute an Innocent Man? The Dennis Williams case. It was co-written by Robert Warden, the owner and editor of Chicago Lawyer. And the article the, the article went after the prosecution, the defense, uh, the counsel, and the judge in the 1978 trial of the Ford Heights Four. Um, so the... Renee Brown had partnered with Warden to investigate the double murder. Renee found a man named Dennis Johnson who shared he was at the Clark gas station where the victims were abducted. This information contradicted the state's story, but Williams' conviction still remained. Uh, Dennis Williams. This frustrated Renee, and when he was asked to go back to Fort Heights by protest, he jumped at the chance. So protests... Uh, apparently at this time he's like oh i have some students that are about to graduate it would be great if they could you know have some life experience seeing all this go down can they come with you renee was like yeah sure they can they can come with um so arthur robinson another witness had confessed to renee and gave a self-immigrating in incriminating i don't know why that word just wasn't (laughs) flying for me incriminating statement which was taken down by the students renee also took credit for tracking down marvin simpson the informant who came forward i talked about him earlier but didn't mention his name um a few days after the murder that you know showed the real or he talked about the guys who actually did it and renee said that protests had talked with him about their story being turned into a movie um featuring the professor and the private investigator kind of working side by side but felt disheartened when the professor kept publicly crediting his students for solving this case and apparently disney was even thinking about making the story into a movie they offered renee a job as a consultant and they sent him a contract that he felt was basically a gag order saying you know it's pretty much gonna focus on the students and not really have your information so we want you to sign this and say that you won't say anything um as far as i could tell i didn't see that disney had ever made a movie about this um good and like i said renee's role was really not mentioned at all in a lot of the articles i read so um yeah, his name wasn't mentioned at all, which is shocking considering, you know, how much information this article credited uh, him, like, bringing to to the story. So, to me, this is, like I was saying earlier, it's like a huge white savior, like, oh, look at these young white girls who saved these, these black men, like, aren't they so amazing? Even though it was a black private investigator who pretty much did all the grunt work. Um, So while that didn't really have anything much to do with Paula, I do think it was an interesting kind of side story that goes along with this case. And I think that it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I mean, in I I think it was um, like that's very fascinating to know. And like... (laughs) I could probably talk all day about how problematic the like white savior narrative is for I think like black people and mm-hmm. I think minority communities in general um but 
yeah i think that oftentimes like if you even look at certain like you'll look at like you'll watch a sports movie and it's a white coach coming to save the unruly black black basketball team and it's like or like oh what's that one movie with sandra bullock the blind side oh yeah the blind side that used to be one of my favorite movies and now i feel terrible i mean what's funny i actually um so before the blind side ever came out like maybe two years before there was like some documentary about michael orr and so i had like had like decent knowledge like i had to watch it in school or something and so i had decent knowledge about it and i was like okay they're acting like this guy couldn't like count to two or read like but that's not who or how he was presented in like the documentary that i watched so i was just like i'm not buying it i mean sandra bullock's performance is great Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.